Hi, I'm Candace Michelle, and this is Our Community. Well, we're midway through January already. The days are getting a wee bit longer, and we're moving towards spring, thank goodness. We seem to be in the middle of an atmospheric river right now, with one major storm after another lined up, bringing strong winds and lots and lots of rain. Highway 101 has a slide a few miles north of Gold Beach. As of this past Friday, it looks like they have one gravel lane open to traffic, thanks to Tidewater. But since the rain doesn't want to quit, this may be an active slide, so if you're headed north, you might want to consult TripCheck before you leave. A shout-out to all the folks working hard to keep life flowing for the rest of us. Joining me today is Brookings Core Response Executive Director, Diana Cooper. Welcome <laughs> back to the show, Diana. Hey. I feel like I want to have drums or something. <laughs> Diana Cooper. <laughs> oh, no. I don't think I need that grand of an introduction. <laughs> oh, I think grand entrances are wonderful. So um, how are you feeling these days? You got uh, long COVID yeah. stuff leaving you alone or catching up to you or what's going on? You know, I'm doing not not too bad right now. Um, it's been, I've been tired, but that's more related to work and school and all that. But mm. um, I, you know, just recently kind of started noticing some slight taste changes again, not for the better. So kind of oh, keeping an eye on that. I was going to hope that maybe you were starting to be able to actually taste no, reality again, but not Everything's much, starting huh? to taste not right again. So I'm oh, hoping, no. I don't know, I'm hoping it's just a passing cold or I don't know. I'm not, I don't feel sick, but it, the taste thing is different. <laughs> so a year ago is when you were going yeah, through that, COVID the yeah. last time. That was my second bout. Yep. And the last one, I was, um, I was testing positive for almost three weeks. So we were, um, it was Noah and I, everybody else was fine and we stayed isolated and one room and so nobody else got sick but yeah i was pretty sick for a good two weeks and then i kind of started recovering for a few days and then i finally tested negative so that was a Thank goodness long one yeah yeah well and you know it's not like COVID is over because it's it's so not done with us the there's a new variant out there that's you know i can't remember the name of it XX135 or something I like that. they're running but out of names. They're just using yeah, letters and numbers. <laughs> but it's, it's the brand new one that is taking over. And it's evidently like a great grandchild of Omicron. Oh, wow. Um, but it's much more contagious. It's not any more serious yeah. uh, in terms of the illness, but it's much more contagious. That's probably so it, what we're going to see it with mm -hmm. as... Um, well, I mean, that's just as pathogens and, and viruses yep. change, you know, that's usually what we see is it becomes somewhat less dangerous because the virus itself is not trying to kill us. Um, it's trying to keep us alive so it can stay alive as well. So it's right. going to peter out to where it's not as dangerous, but it's much yeah. more um, communicable to from person to person. So right. uh, that's pretty normal. And I think that they told us to and kind of expect not that. If the danger goes down, then it won't be, you know, some of us have lived in fear for three years mm -hmm. because we're older and, you know. And it's still likely is, to be yeah. dangerous for certain populations just right. as much as it was before, um, considering most uh, m most viruses, especially when they have to do with your um, 
you know, like your breathing or your your heart mm-hmm. or anything like that. Most viruses that affect those uh, systems are dangerous anyway for certain populations. So right. I think that this is still going to be dangerous for certain populations, but for the rest of us, we might actually, um, you know, be able to get through it just fine. So, well, I'm certainly going to hope. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, because I'm I'm one of those, and my husband is another one of those that. You know, if if we get it, it could be a problem. And mm-hmm. you know, I don't. I need problems like I need a hole in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want any yeah. more problems. I, I would have thought, no, like if I get it, I'll I'll be fine. You know, I'll make it through. And I did, obviously, but not so much fine. So I would love yeah, to just you skip out on you these. You didn't make it through without getting. That's what, yeah. That's what I mean. Right. So I'd love to. I'd love to yeah. skip any future uh, yeah, COVID exactly. variants if I can. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I have a, a very good friend in South Carolina who texted me the other day and said that he he was testing positive and he's been, you know, fully vaxxed, fully yep. boosted, you know, the whole thing. And and he, his symptoms were not bad. He says he's he's back at work now, so he couldn't have been out for any more than a week. Yeah. And the symptoms weren't bad. And he's my age, so, you know. Yeah, maybe. we have a I have a colleague here in Brookings that... Um, we were supposed to see Thursday and we didn't see her. And so we just found out that's why, because she's got COVID. Oh, so geez. it's still hanging around. Yeah. Oh, it definitely is. Not my favorite. Not my yeah. favorite. But, you know, it's it's under control enough that I got to see my daughter for Christmas. I as know. far as I'm I concerned, got to see your daughter for Christmas. Un- I know, right? That you was lovely. I know. I know. She thoroughly enjoyed your family. Yeah. Oh, likewise. So, they they were yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fabulous. So I thought we might, you know, talk about some of the stuff that's been going on. I know that there's been a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Um the obviously the unhoused issue doesn't go away. Um and we're looking at really, really crappy weather I for know. these last couple of weeks, which, you know, makes me very <laughs> Very concerned because I can't imagine. I mean, my my fence is down. You know, there's, oh. there's twenty feet worth of fencing that came down in that wind. So, if I'm losing my fence, that people are not mm-hmm. doing okay out there. Yeah. So, you've got something in place: winter warming or mm-hmm. winter, shelter winter shelter. Or yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Um, so anything. It's called wanna... several things, but yeah. Okay. So, well, you tell me what to call it, and I will call it that. <laughs> we're we're calling it winter shelter. I think that okay. you know the fun the funding is calling it out of the cold, which mm, it's okay. it expe- expressly for what it sounds like. It's to bring people out of the cold weather. Um, so right. we're really trying to. It is a shelter. We are using we're renting space downtown um, mm-hmm. from the owner of a building and. We're using that as the shelter. People do have individual rooms with bathrooms and, um, you know, microwave fridge. So it is nice that it's non-congregate, meaning that people are not sharing rooms. So that's, that's great. great because you, you have know, your own space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For yeah. a lot of reasons, mostly it's really helpful when people come in with chronic homelessness because they do experience a lot of um, effects from trauma from being out uh, for mm-hmm. so long, for years. So you know, people get stuff stolen from, um, they have fear around that, they have kind of just trust issues in general. And so that's helpful. It's also helpful because, you know, we don't want to spread disease. So 
that's right. a really it's it's a really great space for us to be able to use and we're very very grateful to the owner and um so that'll be um running until April 1st we have right now we have 10 beds which are full uh we have our our application online at www.brookingscoreresponse.org forward slash winter dash shelter but you can just go to brookingscoreresponse.org and it's right there the link is right there to the page so that'll take you to the page you can read the information we do have um you know unfortunately one of the things about this shelter this is kind of our first go around with a really uh structured shelter environment here mm-hmm. and um we it's not low barrier so that's that's kind of the bummer part for me is it's not very low barrier but that's what happens when you have when you're using somebody else's space, when you're getting funding um, from the state, and uh, also explain what know. low barrier means. Low barrier would be, um, well, for one, the application process itself would be super simple, you know, easy to. We we tried to make it as simple and easy to understand as possible. It's it's very intuitive. So if you um, select yes, I have more people in my family, you're going to fill out more paperwork. If you select no, it'll skip through all that. You know, if you select that you're not a veteran, you're going to skip through all the veterans' questions. So I tried to make it as intuitive as possible. So you're answering the least amount of questions that needed um, to get you in. But low barrier is usually kind of like, you know, we we don't care what the situation is. We're just here to get you out. It's like an emergency shelter. You know, mm-hmm. if there was a, a really crazy storm, you know, even worse than there is now, the freezing rain, things like that. Like in Ashland, they have an ordinance, uh, their city has an ordinance, and in Medford, it might even be Jackson County wide, that basically says when the weather drops below this degree, and I don't know what it is, probably mm-hmm. 40, um, 35, mm-hmm. it should be higher, but you know, 35, mm-hmm. 40, right. then they're required to open some sort of emergency shelter. And um, likewise, if it gets over a certain temperature, they open a cooling shelter, which is usually mm-hmm. just for the day. So the winter shelter obviously is at night. And in doing that, it's typically very low barrier because the idea is to save lives. So you're not screening people for substance use. You're not um, you're not really doing a lot of screening in general. You're just trying to give people beds. Uh, but you're staffing it. You're doing all those other things as well. So it's not, even though you're not screening for these things, you're still really managing a lot of the conflict. And so it even though it's low barrier, that doesn't mean that there's a lot of problems. It just means that right. um, you're not prioritizing. So for our funding, because we only have 10 beds, because the funding is the way it is, and because it's not our space, we don't own it, um, we had to include a lot of additional requirements. And, um, um, you know, basically our priority population is seniors, you know, people who are over the age of 55, 65 plus, um, we are another population that we're trying to serve as people with disabilities, chronic health conditions. And then we also have space um, for people with children, you know, if they're in their custody, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think we're trying to kind of prioritize after we get through those initial people and we just have the general population, how are we prioritizing that? And it's, you know, it's been a little bit difficult because we had such a rush of applications. We had over 40 applications in 10 days. Um, And the majority of those applications are seniors. And so that 
And that already was hard because now we're trying to determine, okay, here's someone who's 16, here's someone who's 65. They both have health conditions. You know, they both um, are in need of medical care and different services. Who do we bring in and who do we not? And that's a really difficult conversation to have. So we've had to kind of come up with different processes. Um, it's all, it's reviewed by multiple people. That way it's not one person kind of like, oh, I don't know about this person. Or, you know, we're really trying to not take into account outside factors, um, opinions, things like that. We're really just trying to look at the numbers. The, you know, we, we look at the questions we asked, kind of use that as a scoring guide. And then really prioritizing seniors and people with disabilities and people with children. Um, currently, we don't have anyone with children in, but I do know that um, Beth with the Curry Homeless Coalition is also providing some winter shelter up north. And I believe that she has a few people, at least one up there that is, um, he, I think that person is working to get their child back. And so, mm-hmm. you know, obviously that's the situation we want people to be able to have space for that. So, right. Um, most of who we have in there is seniors and then almost all of them, in fact, all but one that I can think of have some pretty serious disabilities, you know, either they're blind, they're, um, they don't have all of the use of their body. They may be in a wheelchair, um, or they may, you know, have ongoing medical conditions where they're being treated right now currently. So those are really our highest priority. We want to get people off the street that could you know, they could lose their life in this storm. Um, so that's that's who we have I remember, now. Mm-hmm. and I think it was in, in Jackson County, um, and it was probably, it might have been last year, everything, you know, mm-hmm. kind of mushes together. But, but somebody died. There was, there was somebody who died underneath a bridge. Yeah, there it was. really cold. There was, and... You know, a few years ago, and I'm not sure if I've shared this story with you, but uh, a few years ago, I was still living in Jackson County. I think I was 2016. Um, that's the first year I volunteered for the Kelly Shelter. Well, that's the first year of the Kelly Shelter in, in Medford. And it was named after a man named Kelly who was homeless and had died in the snow. And so they named mm. it the Kelly Shelter. And um, I went down and volunteered a few nights a week, and I met a lot of really great people down there. And that was the first year they had it where, you know, they didn't have it staffed. So the next year and all the subsequent years it's been staffed and it's, it's gone a lot much, it's gone a lot better, but that first year was pretty chaotic. Um, and really we all learned a lot, but the, we had a limit. So I think originally it was 75 people we were allowed to have, uh, per the fire code. And then for whatever reason that got changed to 50 and I'm not, I don't remember why, um, but that was the night I was there was kind of the first night <clears throat> that it got changed to 50 and it was very strict. Like if, if the 51st person came in, we literally had to tell them no. So, um, and the fire department would stop by at least once a night. So it was pretty strict and wow. the, I, it was me, you know, I turned them away. And so I remember the, the person coming to me and his name was Kelly as well, ironically. And I had to turn him away. And he only had um, one leg and he had a lot of very chronic health conditions. And then he went out back and and went to sleep behind the, um, I think it's their HVAC system that was out there. Mm-hmm. And I didn't notice him when I left and he, he ended up passing away that night. And so that was really 
kind of rough for everybody. And I certainly felt um, a lot of guilt in the moment just because, you know, I was the one that turned him away. Uh, So I keep that in mind, too, as we're providing the services Mm -hmm. that we have that there were a lot of people in that shelter that needed to be there, but also, you know, might have been okay that night. And obviously, Kelly was not. And there are other people that I don't think were. So we want to make sure we're prioritizing to save lives. Um, And that's hard because we're basically telling people, you know, you're, you're not as bad off as others. And so it does, it actually incentivizes people to um, expand on their situation and really try to um, make it more egregious than it is. And that makes it a little bit difficult for us to navigate because we, you know, we're, it, it tugs on your heartstrings. You hear a lot of, of really awful stories. So yeah, of course. Yeah, prioritizing. But, it, but it's hard. kind of appalling to me hmm. that it's kind of appalling to me that that you had forty people apply and most of them were seniors yeah. and most of them were disabled in some. I I mean, it's appalling that it we is. don't have a place for them to get in out of this weather. It's, it's appalling. It's maddening sometimes because, you know, we're, when you're on the ground doing the work, you're really not listening to a lot of the rhetoric that comes out. Um, And actually, I really haven't heard a lot in the community lately, especially with the storms. Maybe everybody's quiet and inside right now. Right. (laughs) Um, But it, when we're on the ground and we're doing this work, you know, we're really head down, nose to the grindstone, just trying to get as much done as we can. I mean, our team is pushing hard. Everybody is right now. Um, but I can definitely attest that our team is pushing very hard. And when we emerge, sometimes uh, we hear different rhetoric, different things. And it's, you know, when you're seeing what's really happening and then you're hearing these things that are obviously um, fiction coming from community members or leadership, it it almost, <laughs> it almost kind of makes you lose your mind sometimes because you're just, that's not what we're seeing. So what we are seeing is, seniors, definitely. Um, And of course, we're seeing all kinds of people applying and from various walks of life and ages. And um, we've been able to support a few people who aren't seniors or a person with disabilities because either they're, you know, about to get a job and it requires that they have a place to be or, um, you know, we did, we were supporting one person who was working toward um, getting some treatment for substance use and and that person is hopefully will be successfully um, heading to treatment on Monday and oh no Tuesday yeah so so it's not just you know it's everybody we're seeing everybody and yeah. we're seeing a lot of applications come through you know and and it's interesting to me that um, you know, so often you and your organization are kind of vilified, you know, for loving the homeless and, you know, being, I don't know, mm-hmm. liberals or whatever. But but the reality is that you're actually saving people's lives. And I think that gets glossed over entirely too much. You are saving people's lives. And that's that's enormous. That's an enormous thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, because obviously we don't know what would happen if we weren't intervening in certain circumstances. We can guess. And certainly there's situations where I think we'd be pretty accurate if we guessed that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't really think about it when we're doing the work and when we're on, you know, it's almost like, 
you know, the Friday, so we actually get out of there about six o'clock now. Um, so our hours are eight to six. Uh, we have staff on shift, various shifts from eight to six through the week. And so at Friday at six o'clock when the, um, the last shift leaves, which I, I actually am doing, um, eight to six Monday through Friday, just to make sure I can kind of cover both teams right now and making sure everything's smooth. But I think that'll back off soon. Um, so at six o'clock on Friday, when I'm leaving with our, our other staff person, uh, we're kind of like, oh, we did a lot this week, you know, and this feels good. This feels right. This feels like this is how it's supposed to go. And so, you know, while I certainly think that's true, that there are people whose lives are saved, even if it's not necessarily their physical, it maybe their mental health has been saved. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really think about it much when we're doing the work, I, I think, or at least I don't. I think we're just mm-hmm. so um, trying to make sure we're taking those next right steps. It's a Absolutely. lot to coordinate, um, you know, getting, first of all, getting someone to treatment, that's a lot to coordinate. And I think this is one thing that I, I definitely would love for people to know is that when somebody does want to get help and get off of drugs, um, it, it is not just a matter of choice. There are so many steps. I mean, certainly, yes. If you're adamant, like, all right, I'm done and I'm done, done. Um, it's likely that you could have success, but the steps to get there, especially if you're trying to look for a treatment if, or if you need detox, because some substances, alcohol mainly, um, mm-hmm. require detox. Otherwise you can actually die. You know, most other drugs, they don't, uh, methamphetamine usually does not, heroin usually does not, uh, fentanyl probably would require mm. some detox just because it's mm-hmm. it's so I mean I I don't even know kind of what that would do just cold turkey. I'm sure you most people would be fine, but it, it's better that you do get detox and medical right. observation. Right. Um and then other uh like Xanax and and things like that where you know you, people take those for anxiety, those typically require same with alcohol, they require detox because those can mm. really affect your heart. Uh, when wow. you're coming down. So usually things like that and alcohol do require it. Um, opiates, not not always, but it's preferable mm-hmm. for people because you really are going to go through a lot. Um, and so the steps to getting to treatment, which um, one of my teammates just kind of found over the, the course of this week, because they're they've been the person coordinating that this week. Uh, you know, you have to, first of all, they have to have insurance. You've got to make sure that the insurance is contracted with certain providers. Um, you've got to call the providers. The person has to get an ASAM, which is a, a special assessment to determine what level of care that person needs. So they have to score high enough to require detox. You know, if they're like, yeah, I drink once a week and I really want to go to detox, they're not going to score high enough. So mm-hmm. they have to get that ASAM to determine their placement. And then that has to be sent off to the different detox centers, unless there's one we've identified that would take them in right away, in which case, usually the ASAM happens at that detox center. Um, Some centers don't require it ahead of time. And what we're learning right now is ADAPT is actually um, in Roseburg, they have a center that will do their ASAM once they get there. They just do like a screening over the phone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Adapt. We've been working with Adapt this last week for this individual, and that's been really great. So they've been really responsive, and I'm I'm so glad for that because you know with Adapt coming into our area, we we weren't unfamiliar with them. I have used Adapt as a service before to help people get treatment, 
but it's been very infrequent. And so we weren't sure how that was going to look, but they've mm-hmm. definitely stepped it up um, in, in the form of offering treatment for, you know, people here in Curry County. So, so you've, you've got to get this ASAM, you've got to get a detox bed for them, which usually is not right away. There's a risk mm. the person might not follow through because, yeah, you know, yeah, you say you want it, but, but the temptation and the urge to the, first of all, the fear of living without it after you've been on it so long yeah. is very real and people will drop off. They'll, they'll kind of disappear before they get into detox sometimes. So. Um, we're really hopeful on Monday that we're going to see this person and get them through. And then you've got to tran- you've got to schedule their transportation. That's a whole mm. thing in and of itself. Mm. And mm. most transportation paid for by the state requires forty eight hours. So if mm. you've got you've got to get this ASAM quickly so you can get it to detox to find out if they have a bed. You've got to call transportation. If you find out they can get to detox the next day, well, they can't because the transportation won't be ready. So you have to schedule it a few days out and then they can't do their screening until like maybe a couple days before. If it doesn't line up exactly, it's, it's a mess and you have to keep rescheduling. So that's, that's just one of the major hurdles for people when they want to quit using. So I, I definitely wish that that was something more, you know, talked about a lot more in our community. Right, right. And it is a complicated process. Very just, complicated. Just the wanting to get off of it mm-hmm. is a complicated process. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. there are so many factors for, you know, why somebody would start using drugs to begin with. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and then get to the point where they need to be using drugs in order yeah. to be able to cope with life because... Their life is so, you know, crap. That brings up another, you know, potential hurdle is do they have a medical condition or a chronic health condition or a mental health condition that is causing the substance use that we also need to be bringing in support for at the same time? And the major question, this is is the one that really almost kind of makes or uh, breaks whether or not a person goes, when they discharge where do they go? Do they have a place yeah. to go? Because right. I can tell you from getting clean from heroin and opiates that, first of all, it's not fun. That's quite an understatement. <laughs> right. um, weeks of writhing in pain and in discomfort and sweat. And, um, you know, it's certainly, I'm not sure if it's worse than COVID or not. Well, my experience with COVID, but I wouldn't go through it again willingly. You know, I mm-hmm. I just, it's awful. And so for most people, they wouldn't go through it willingly. You know, once they've gone through it once, they realize it's pretty awful. So right. if you use again, there's not a lot of incentive internally to get clean because you know you're going to go through that again. Yes. Um, so it's, it's really important that when people do choose to get detox and choose to get treatment or they just choose to get clean, that there's some kind of support on the end of that so that they're not relapsing because it makes it just that much harder to get them again. Yeah, because if they're going to go right back into the same situation that they were in, you know, the same people, the same geographical Or back out on the street, you know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so... There's just no, yeah. So planning There's no incentive. (laughs) Right. So planning the discharge is just as important as planning the admission. And Mm, that's mm. the hardest piece because we don't Mm -hmm. have 
housing and shelter, you know. So with with the shelter, it you know, sometimes we may have flexibility to be able to provide stuff like that when people are coming out and make sure they're connected with ADAPT and make sure that they have, a, you know, a full range of support so that they're not coming into a space and then um, kind of shooting themselves in the foot. So, right. you know, I know we got off topic with the, with the shelter, but that's certainly a big piece of um, having some kind of shelter, having some kind of space is can you, you know, can you dedicate some of that space to people who mm. are looking to get clean? Because that's one of the biggest gaps here in Curry County, and mm. we want to support that. So, you know, in the future, our hope is that we have ongoing permanent space for people mm-hmm. Um, whether they're seniors, whether they're people with disabilities, or whether they're trying to get clean and, and get, get out of detox or treatment. so um, Because yeah. right now you've got 10 beds. I mean, yep. and, and 40, 40 people minimum who Yeah, need there's the more beds. now. I saw a few actually that came in today. Yeah. Um, even on the yeah. weekends, we get wow. applications. So and basically the process is the applications come in. And this took us a minute. It took us a week or so to, you know, we, we spent... A month and a half planning all this and then day one we it was like well these three things don't work at all and um yep <laughs> so you know best laid plans but we yes. we kind of have fallen into a groove now where we 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 kind of think that this is probably the best path for us forward so mm-hmm. you know when the applications come in i review them with our peer support specialist who is on the ground who knows most of the people and uh, we review just really for priority reasons and kind of almost score score each application and then put it into our spreadsheet. Um, and, and there are times where it, we put one in and it does move everybody down on the list. And that's just the reality of prioritizing. Um, right. You know, I, I cannot in good conscience offer the bed to a, you know, 30-year-old, otherwise healthy individual living in a van as opposed to a 65 year old person with chronic health conditions living in a tent that that makes sense so um especially you know we we are really trying to prioritize people that have been in the area and that sometimes that changes you know if we had an older person who came in and did have some serious chronic health conditions but they've only been here a few weeks chances are we may prioritize that person just because of the situation but we're also trying to figure out where did you come from? Do you have support elsewhere? Things like that, because mm-hmm. we only have ten beds. But the likelihood of of some of prior, prioritizing them over someone who's been here longer, if if they're otherwise healthy, is you know that's a pretty good chance. So right now that's not the case. Everybody that we have in the shelter has been here for at least a year. I, I think probably even longer than that, because we do ask mm-hmm. that question. Um, have you been here for more than six months? Have you been here for more than a year? Have you lived here one to three years, three to five? So we're kind of trying to gauge what the population looks like. Um, and so that's one of the prioritizations is uh, people who have been here for a while. And I think that was something that the police chief and the city definitely wanted to make sure that we were keeping an eye on. And we we wanted to as well. So mm-hmm. that's been helpful. Um, and narrowing down, same with the priorities for seniors and people with disabilities, that's been helpful. So once we get them kind of scored and we get them in the spreadsheet, 
then we send that off to the owner to make sure that there's no conflict between the owner and the, the people that we want to bring in because sometimes there mm-hmm. there is you know mm-hmm. and we've had a couple where we've had to turn away because there's been a negative experience with that owner so um so that happens and then we consult so the whole team sees that list and you know if there's any objections if there's any complications we bring it up ahead of time um, and then basically they're on the wait list at this point. Now they're on the wait list. So, right. you know, as soon as we have an open bed, we just go to the next person on the list and we call mm-hmm. them and, and bring them in. So that's our sort of, pri- that's our, our prioritization and how we handle applications. Um, and then we have staff at the motel at 8 a.m. We have our case manager who's at the motel at 8 a.m. working with people all morning. Um, we have a <clears throat> shelter manager who essentially is kind of just making sure all the logistics outside of the case management are going okay. We've got supplies we need. Um, you know, if the owner of the property is having any concerns or has any questions, we're able to address it right away. Um, and really just making sure everything on the back end is running smooth. And then we have, um, you know, our peer support specialist who comes in in the afternoon. And I, I'm currently working alongside him. So we go over there in the afternoon um, mm-hmm. and just make sure everything's clean. We clean up the yep. office over there. We uh, make sure if we do provide dinner. Um, I think that the case manager and the um, shelter manager right now are providing lunch from the churches. So they go pick up mm-hmm. lunch usually. Great. And then we purchase dinner. So, you know, d- it depends. Fridays though, we mm-hmm. do pizza because why not? Why <laughs> so not? <laughs> we just did pizza last night and that was, it's always kind of fun for myself and the peer support because we get there at the end of the day when everything's already been done and we just clean up and then give everybody food and they love us so um of course (laughs) yeah so we have the best shift i think (laughs) yeah you've come a long way since last year because i'm i'm sitting here thinking about what it was last year oh yeah you know you had you had a few rooms and Mm -hmm. you know you were jockeying covid people who had right, needed yeah. to be, you know, we in had, isolation and we had the isolation and quarantine rooms for people with COVID. We had mm-hmm. uh, recovery rooms for people getting the vaccine who did have reactions. We had um hospital decompression, which is basically when people are going into the hospital who don't have a place to live and if they discharge them they will end up back in the hospital. So basically they just, the hospital has to hold them until they're able to be out. And that's really not functional for the hospital at all, especially during COVID, you know? Yeah. So that, that was backing up the hospital quite a bit. Um, so we had that people b- being discharged to the rooms, not people needing medical care, but need, needing um, sanitation and, and safe, a safe place for them to be. So there was that. And then there was also the out of the cold, the winter shelter. Yeah. So yeah. we had kind of four different tracks that people were getting mm-hmm. in and out of the shelter mm-hmm. and yeah it was a little i think it we was had a little, it was definitely by the seat of the pants time it, right? it was I a mean, little bit yeah um <laughs> there was much less planning much less staffing yeah. and you know it still was very successful but we saw mm-hmm. some pain points last year that we wanted right. to address this year and we have right. and yeah you know anytime that something comes up this year now we have the staffing to say oh can you run over and grab these supplies so that the Mm -hmm. owner is not you know worrying about this or that so we've been able to mitigate a lot of things and look at last year and say 
well, this worked and this didn't work. And, right. uh, right. But it's still so learning. Where do you want to be with this with this particular project next year? We want to have our own space. You know, we mm-hmm. I cannot thank the owner enough. Really, I can't. He he's him and his family have been just well above and beyond the the call of duty for a citizen and mm-hmm. a business owner. Um, but it, that comes with a lot of restrictions when you're using someone else's space, and that makes sense. You know, we're moving forward with it because, yeah, it makes sense to have those restrictions. Now, on on the social service end, it's very difficult. A lot of those restrictions make it difficult for us to do our job the way that we are ethically trained to do. Um, We've found a balance, of course, because we have to. But having our own space would mean, um, you know, that... If there's a if there's a behavior that our peer support could go in and work with this person for a few days, because, you know, some people have been on the street for 15, 20 years and getting them into a uh, a bed and into a building uh, is new for them. And there are going to be things that they aren't used to doing. And so if we had our own space, we would have time to provide that peer support and provide that, you know, technical assistance when it comes to learning you know, it's not even learning better habits. They're not children. They know them. It's just been a while since they've used those or had to think about certain things. And right. so it's just a matter of us coming in and supporting them through a trauma-informed way. And the way that we're working right now is not always trauma-informed. And that doesn't make us feel good sometimes because we, and it's not because we're not being nice. It's because we know that when you handle things in a trauma-informed way, you're actually helping someone grow through it and there's a better outcome. So sometimes we have to handle things in a way right now that we know doesn't really build the space for a better outcome, Hmm. uh, but it's a better outcome than they were going to have. So that we're okay with that. But next year, you know, having potentially having a space of our own is something that, you know, gives me motivation. Um, Mm -hmm. And, that's what we're going to be looking for is we're going to be looking for funding and support for um, an ongoing shelter that we can staff and have maybe additional rooms, additional spaces for people. So I don't know what that looks like, but it's out there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really the only thing you can do is to just keep working towards the goal. Right. I mean, it, it shows up when it yeah. shows up. Uh, that's what know? I found. I yeah. Yeah. I stress about things, and then um, I just put my head down, and start working, and then all of a sudden, it, it's just on my doorstep. So you yeah. know, and it does yeah. take work. It's not a not necessarily oh, a no, miracle. Oh no, it doesn't. But <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't magic. show up on its own. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you have to work at it. But it is yeah. amazing that when when everything when it's the right time and all of the mm. factors align then, you know, it's it's there and it's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's, a, it's a good feeling when all the stars align. <laughs> oh, yes, it certainly is. <laughs> so are, are there any other projects that CORE is looking towards or getting oh, gosh, involved yeah. with? <laughs> oh, yeah. We, <laughs> yeah. We have some really awesome projects coming up uh, this year that, I'm, I mean, our whole team is excited about. I'm pretty sure even our finance department is excited because it's just – it's just really cool to be able to grow and to be able to see a program somewhere else and say, you know what, we want to, we want a piece of that and then see it happening. So mm-hmm. like, like with the shelter, you know, we really looked to Rogue Retreat. We went and toured over there and 
Um, and of course, I've done several years of volunteering for their shelter over the year before. So to see a piece of that here, um, and, and not just have it here and like, oh, it's novel and then it goes away, but to see a piece of it here and see it working well and functioning the way it's supposed to is really exciting. And um, sometimes I'm surprised. It's just like, look what we did, you know? So um, so we've seen some other programs out there that we really want to bring into Curry County. And one of those is a street medicine uh, program. So there's a, you can go online. I think it's, it might be like smi.org or something, but the Street Medicine Institute is a global program in, and basically it's like, um, you know, how like a sandwich shop might open a, a shop, but then they'll, they'll take a, they'll purchase the franchise from like Subway. So there'll be a Subway. Right. That's right. kind of what this is, where an organization can bring in this this program and call it mm-hmm. their program. They just have to do it to fidelity. So mm-hmm. that requires a lot of technical support and training and, you know, from everything from policies to staffing to hiring and firing. I mean, it's really important that all of the pieces of the program are understood by the organization. So we have funding right now um, to start consultation with Street Medicine Institute. And that what that looks like for us is that we'll be, you know, seeking out a medical provider to bring on staff. And, um, you know, wow. initially that may be contracting. But uh-huh. in the end, the goal is that we will have a provider on staff and be able to do street outreach with this provider, um, be able to prescribe and refer and, you know, obviously, wow. we wow. want to get people to a medical home. So we want mm-hmm. them to be eventually in a building somewhere seeking care. So right. we're not we're not doing this to duplicate any efforts for primary care. We know, you know, Coast Community Health is eventually going to have a primary care provider in Brookings. Um, there are other primary care providers as well, um, Curry mm-hmm. Health Network uh, and some others. So we're not doing it to duplicate any of those services. We're doing it to try to build a pathway from the street to the doctor's office. And the more people we can get into a building for care, getting their labs done, getting their, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, whatever it is that they need, any diagnostics and testing. So we see this as really a stepping stone. It's not a, you know, we bring people in and now they're with us for primary care. That may happen right. with some people because mm-hmm. there may be some right. people who never want to go into a building for various reasons. You know, especially, again, as someone who's been here for generations, I mean, um, I mean, obviously I'm only about 35, but as someone whose family has been here for generations, yes. <laughs> um, we, it is not hard for me to understand why people don't go to the doctor here. I myself was really resistant and it wasn't out of a place of not wanting to go to the doctor. It was just, well, why would I go that they don't do anything? Or, you know, why would I go? Because I have to see I'm a different dying. doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm not dying. <laughs> I'm um, not dying. <laughs> and historically we have gotten very little care sometimes and not all of it's been the best care. You know, I've been yep. misdiagnosed multiple times with, mm-hmm. with serious diseases, including my first bout of COVID, including having meningitis when I was 18, you know, those were all misdiagnosed. So it's not hard to understand that people are resistant to going to medical providers. When I lived in Jackson County, it was totally different because they had healthcare on every corner. I could Mm -hmm. go 
two blocks down the street to an urgent care hmm. and and get in within 15. In fact, I could sign up online and they would text me when it was my turn and I would just drive down. So it, night and day, you know, between what we have yeah. here and what, what there are is available in other communities. So again, I understand not everybody trusts healthcare over here. And it's not that they don't trust the doctor and they think they're trying to kill them. It's that they don't trust that when they go in, they're going to be taken seriously. They don't trust that they're going to be, um, you know, a lot of the people that we work with go into the doctor and kind of get brushed aside. You know, it's really like, well, it's the, all these issues are because of your addiction um, right. and things like that. In fact, we've had providers tell people uh, when we flat out ask, do you think that this specific condition is being exacerbated by their homelessness? And having a provider say, no, it's because of their drug use, when this person doesn't even use drugs, has been, for that person, it's it just total wow. broken trust. Yep. Because the yep. provider doesn't believe that they don't use substances, and the provider's not taking their living situation into account when it comes to their health. So yep. we want to create a pathway, but, but in order to do that, we have to get people to trust healthcare. and. Right. If I could do one thing in all of my work in in homelessness and in our community, not even just homelessness, because originally I didn't come back here to start an organization for homelessness. I came back because I knew that seniors and, and a lot of other people in our community don't seek out medical care. Right. So my passion is to get people to trust medical care. And we can't do that if we don't start start with the providers themselves and start changing how they're treating people. Um, and I, I've seen a lot of really great providers in our community, so I know it can happen. And that's that's but what I've we want. I've also seen medicine. some some crap ones. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> but that's I mean, everywhere. Have, you, know. you know, yes, that's and, true. But but it seems like there are <laughs> more here than it's other just, places. It, it's and maybe just because, it's because we, have, we a, have fewer of. That's the what whole. it is, right? That's yeah. what it is. So it's like yeah. we don't have more than other communities because I worked at. You know, I worked in healthcare in Jackson County for several years, and one of my jobs included interacting with, I mean, almost every medical provider's office in Jackson County. Hmm. And um, I can tell you, you know, I've had doctors, I didn't usually talk with the doctors themselves, because I usually talked with their their staffing, their referrals coordinators, their, you know, nurses. Um, but I did one time have a doctor call me and just let loose cussing at me and totally oh unprofessional um, oh. in Jackson County. And that's not the only time I had very unprofessional interactions. And I've even filed internal uh, quality internal complaints on certain providers. So mm -hmm. certainly it's everywhere. It's the fact that we have so few providers here. So, you know, if you have if you have 50 doctors and five of them suck, okay, if you have 10 providers and five of them suck. That's a big deal. Big so, deal. Yes. Um, yeah. And yeah. and I don't know what the reasoning is for why some of the providers aren't, you know, I don't know if it's because they've been here a long time and they're just sort of set in their ways or or what. But right. but I've I've seen a few really good ones and, and we want to cultivate that. And I don't know Absolutely. if we'll end up, you know, partnering with a provider that's been here or if we'll be able to bring mm -hmm. someone in from from elsewhere. But that's our goal. Um, we are just starting with uh, the consultation for street medicine. You know, these putting building a program like this is going to take time. We don't anticipate being able to provide actual street medicine until the end of 2023. Um, obviously, mm. the sooner the better. 
But mm-hmm. this requires months of training with our staff, uh, building the program, the policies, the, you know, right. making sure we have malpractice insurance, which is something we, we don't, you know, need right now. We don't currently have licensed providers. So it will right. change the dynamics a little bit of the organization, but we still are intending to be peer led and uh, peer delivered. So, yeah, because that makes a big difference. You know, it, if, it if does. People know that they're dealing with somebody who, actually understands their it's we've had interactions with people where when they learn that they you know they feel that they can trust us even more and Mm -hmm. we've had interactions with people who aren't even necessarily willing to engage with us but then kind of you know understanding i've had conversations with clients where they've you know said things like you know you don't understand like this is what's going on and this is what it's like and when i've said yeah i I sometimes I'm talking with a client and I've actually been homeless longer than them. And so when I relay that and when I talk about my issues going, you know, getting services here, it it does change the dynamics of the conversation immediately. And it's been really helpful. Um, But it's also been helpful on the systemic sense where, you know, me as a person with lived experience, when I'm talking with funders or when I'm writing for grants to be able to say, this doesn't work for peer-led organizations, and this is why you're keeping our capacity low. This is why we're not being successful, because you're only investing in agencies that have that are huge, that are um, whales of an organization. You know, you're only investing in, and the reason why I can say that is because if your reporting is four reports in six months with multiple expenditure reports compared, you know, if they're comparing dollar to dollar, if they're requiring such high capacity reporting, they're automatically shutting out small organizations, especially those that are peer led that are still kind of getting on track with a lot of that reporting. And I'm not even yeah. sure we should get on track with a lot of that. I kind of just I think <laughs> we need to redo some of this. But that's those are conversations I can have with funders because mm-hmm. you know, because I, I am a peer and I am a person with lived experience. And it it has changed people's minds. So Oh, I'm sure it has. I mean, if they feel like somebody understands what they're saying, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a huge difference between that and and talking to somebody that you you know, just by looking at them, they have no clue what (laughs) you're talking about. I I definitely have um, interacted with services when I was homeless or when I was using, um, interacted with services where the provider, I just, I was like, this person has no idea. And they're yeah. in charge of my care, and yeah. there's nothing I can do about that. So, yeah, very yeah. passionate about people with lived experience, and that just really means that can mean anything. If you're if you're working in domestic violence, lived experience would mean that you have some sort of trauma or intimate partner violence or some kind of domestic right. violence. Right. So it's different for every job, every you know position but but it, you know yeah. it, it actually is i mean we all have that desire to be understood um you know yeah. i i would prefer to see a woman doctor all the time yeah, same. because i'm Me a too. woman and you know a woman is going to understand what i'm talking about right i would also like to have a doctor who is in my age range, because right, when, yeah. when I say I'm tired and I don't have the energy, you know, a 50-year-old a or a 40-year-old is not going to understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, I might I post-COVID. I felt <laughs> when I was 40 or 50, yeah, yeah, right? no, and I no wouldn't doubt. have understood. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, uh, to be to be fair, though, <laughs> as someone who is under 40, yeah. I um, a lot of my education, even though I took a lot of education in early childhood development, what I in, in fact, it was in that education where we, you know, where I took lifespan human development and we learned a lot about geriatric care and a lot about end of life decisions. And there's this really, really good book. I um, can't remember the title, but it's by Atul. Gawande, so A-T-U-L-G-W-A-N-D-E. And it's basically about healthcare, geriatric healthcare, and people in the at the end of life and how we've over-medicalized um, you know, those decisions and it does not increase the quality of care, even if we increase the interventions, medical interventions. Right. So right. um there's there are a lot of people my age that are really, really compassionate about elder care. And I think for me, that came from growing up in this community where it's such a high population of seniors. And mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, when my grandma in 2017 had, had cancer and was passing and I came in, my aunt and I both took care of her for the last few weeks. It just, it came naturally to me. It just felt mm. like a the right fit, you know, mm-hmm. to to be working with people who are elderly and working with people who are Maybe not even at the end of life, because I, I know you're in your 70s, but it still doesn't feel like you're I'm at the end of life. nowhere near the yeah. end. Just you still you got know. like 30. <laughs> yeah. So um, really, there is there is a difference between, you know, people who are older and end of life care, because it, it yes. doesn't, you know, just because you're older doesn't mean you're there. So right. there's a there's a difference. And I'm really passionate about both. You know, I'm passionate. Yeah. I am. Sure. Like, yes, I obviously I have four kids. I'm passionate about early childhood education and development. But I think that where my real passion lies is seniors, people with disabilities, because of this community and because of growing up here. So, yes, you definitely want someone who understands. And as an addict, I, I want someone who understands. But some of yes. some of my closest allies have been people who've never used drugs. And mm-hmm. so, you know, having an open mind is is almost more important than having lived experience sometimes. But both are important. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, and and I know that things can be really different as you get older, and mm-hmm. and I only know that because I've now gone through it. You know, <laughs> I mean, when when I turned fifty, things changed, and when I turned <laughs> sixty, things changed again, and when I turned seventy, things changed yet again. And, you know, part of that undoubtedly is COVID and, you know, all of that stuff that was going on. But, you know, there are real things that happen as you get older. There, there yeah. just are. And, you know, it's, it's helpful if your medical professionals actually know what yeah. some of that is. Yeah. 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 So we're we're getting uh, close to running out of time again, which is, I, you know, I don't know how that happens every single week. Diana. I'm always like, I'm always like, gosh, I don't know if we're going to be able to fill up the whole hour, and then we right? get, and then I'm like, right? oh, how are we going to fit the rest of it in in a few minutes? I know, I know, because I had all kinds of other yeah. stuff I wanted to talk Quick, about. Talk fast. <laughs> we we do have two new council members on the city council, um, mm-hmm. the, Andy Martin and Isaac Hodges whose cousin Brent served on the council for several years. And and what I wanted to talk about with that is that 
There are so many things that happen with appointments in committees and city council that people get appointed rather than opening it up to, you know, people who might be interested. But I think we're probably going to have to talk about that next time because there's just yeah, not but that is true talk. because. It's so yeah. often where it's just like, I heard there's an opening and there's already someone in. And it's like, oh, I yes. if I'd have known, you know. I know. Not that I would have been picked. Hat, but, <laughs> but I would have put my hat in the right, ring exactly. at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on the, on the same night that Brad Alcorn left as city councilor. Right. The very next agenda item was appointing his successor. Yeah. That's, it's always like that. I know, I know. It's and we're crazy. just kind of like, wait, what? Yeah, wait, wait, wait. I didn't or, know that was you know, Brent's cousin. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And, and somebody got put on the budget committee. You know? Oh, I didn't like, know that. Yeah, the, who knew there was an opening? Nobody. I did nobody not knew know there was that. An yeah, opening. I know, I know exactly. So yeah, it's it's not. I don't think it's the best way to run right a democracy. <laughs> But what do I know, you know? Yeah, with your 70 years. Yeah, exactly. But I I think that we probably should, you know, spend a little bit of time, maybe the next show, talking about that. And and the missed opportunities, because I think that's, for me, that's what keeps hitting home, Mm -hmm. is that if if you're appointing people based on who you know, and, right. you know, it's generally the mayor who's appointing people. So they're people that that Mayor Hedenskog already knows. And they're usually people who've been here for several decades. And, right. and he knows their family and all of that. And it's like, well, what about all of the people who've moved into town over the last 20 years? Right. You know, he, and and the, the wealth of experience and... Yeah. education and it, it just it just seems yeah foolish. we'll definitely have to go over yeah. that good all right then we will um diana thank you once again for coming on the show i love listening to you talk about the stuff the core is doing <laughs> because it's it, you know it's clearly so so important and so needed in the community so thank you thank you for everything you're doing kiddo and i hope everything mm-hmm. continues to run smoothly mm-hmm right? Yeah. (laughs) And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Stay warm, stay dry if you can. And if anyone knows of someone who can rebuild my fence, (laughs) please let me know. (laughs) I'm Candace Michelle, and this is our community. 